I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Joining us today is FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss. Now you might be wondering, what do the high stakes of hostage negotiation have in common with cycling, with our daily quest to be a better version of ourselves? As we'll discover, the lessons Chris brings from his world shed light on the nuanced negotiations we undergo every day, be it in personal dynamics, professional endeavours or our athletic pursuits. In today's discussion, we'll explore beyond the surface, uncovering perspectives that help us understand not only the subtleties of negotiation with others, but also the strategies for facing and embracing the various challenges that life presents us every day. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. And in point of fact, stress is either, if you believe it debilitates you, it does. If you believe it enhances your performance, it does. And I view, there's one particular person that I used to think of um, that would instantly make me angry. Who was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish, I'd love to be able to say. Because any adult over the age of 25 really struggles to stay in the moment. The more past we have, the more we either reflect on our past or compare it to our future. And if we're doing either, we are not in the moment. I was very enamored with myself and I went to the head of the hostage negotiation team in New York and presented myself as a gift to her, ta-da, and was immediately rejected. He was suitably <laughs> unimpressed with me. Chris, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited, Chris. Chris, athletes often talk about this idea of being in the zone or a flow state. Different athletes have uh, different names for it, finding their rhythm during a race. I'm curious, in high-stakes negotiations, how do you find your zone? Like, Do you have a routine to elicit a state change to get you into that zone? Not necessarily routine. I mean, I, I believe emotions are sort of a rock, paper, scissors approach. And depending upon the emotion you're trying to get yourself out of at the moment, there is sort of the, the highest performance, the zone, if you will, um, flow is highly positive, but there's not always a direct route to the highly positive state. So if, I'm, if I find myself in a playful mood, and it doesn't have to be a high stakes negotiation, it could be any negotiation. You know, I need I need to ideally sense, uh, intuit the brilliance of the moment, the thing that I got to say that's exactly right there. If I'm in a bad mood, I found personally, and this is why I think a lot of people mistake anger as a way to, to give them high performance. Anger is a way of waking up. A negative emotion might be a way of pulling you out of uh, depression, sadness. I learned a number of years ago that if I was very sad about something, uh, unhappy, depressed, loss of my mother, whatever it might be. If I were to think of somebody that really annoyed me, that I mean, just really made me angry, I could feel the sadness being soaked up and taken place, taken away immediately. So it's, uh, the question is, where where am I starting from? Again, uh, what I believe to be the rock, rock paper, scissors approach to uh, uh, elevating your emotions. You know, Michael Jordan on a consistent basis, when he was playing basketball, people would constantly say, you know, don't make him angry, don't get him mad. <laughs> because he would be in the doldrums in a particular game, not paying attention. Maybe his mind is elsewhere. And if you piss him off, suddenly it shocks him into the moment. And people assume that Michael Jordan always played best angry. 
Well, if you look at his, the videos of him playing, when he was doing his most amazing things, you know, with the tongue sticking out and wagging all over the place and being highly creative, he was in a highly positive frame of mind. I mean, you could see the joy of performing going on at that point in time. Uh, one game, I think he hit six threes in a row, and he just kind of looked over at the side and sort of shrugged his shoulders with a smile on his face. So your, your, your highest performance state, the, the state of flow, is highly positive. Now, how you get there sort of depends upon where you're starting from at the moment. For me, it's typically I don't always get myself out of elevated from the bad spot by anger. Like if I'm frustrated, if I can go to gratitude. You know, I'm lucky to be here in the first place. The only reason I'm dealing with this problem that's sucking the life out of me at the moment is because my life happens to be very successful. So generally speaking, I'll go to positive first, but sometimes I need anger to get me out of a uh, sadness. I think anger, anger is the best cure for sadness. It's not the best high-performance state, but it's it's better than being being sad or depressed. And practically, how do you make that transition? Is that visualization? Is that breathing exercises? Uh, well, for, out of sadness, you know, they're just, and I've used, there's one particular person that I used to think of, um, that would instantly make me angry. Who was it? Uh, yeah, I wish I'd love to be able to say, um, and, and I use that guy so many times and I've gotten myself out of it so many times that thinking about him doesn't hardly make me angry at all anymore. But, um, then, uh, for general maintenance, for mental health maintenance, uh, it's gratitude first thing in the morning. I ran a gratitude exercise this morning. I try to I try to change it a little bit uh, each day or or discover something new. Today, what I wrote down on a journal that I keep is discover today, because any adult over the age of twenty five really struggles to stay in the moment. The more past we have, the more we either reflect on our past or compare it to our future. And if we're doing either, we are not in the moment. And you can't be at your highest performance state unless you're in the moment. So default wiring of human uh, human beings is to be highly negative. Gratitude as a regular basis is good mental hygiene to keep you from that place in the first place. We kind of have a North Star on the podcast, and it's this mantra of health, happiness, and longevity. And a big part of this... What about vitality? You got a, you know, longevity, vitality, which one are you going for? Uh, they're all in there. We got, it just had a nicer ring to it. But I think with either, a big part of it is it's stress management. It's not bringing home work with you. So by that, I mean having like an adequate silo system to be able to compartmentalize stress for work situations. Now, I haven't had the experience of working in these high stress situations, but I know one of your early careers was working on a suicide hotline. Right. Firstly, I suppose, how did that come about? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I, I was very enamored with myself and I went to the head of the hostage negotiation team in New York and presented myself as a gift to her, ta-da, and was immediately rejected. He was suitably <laughs> unimpressed with me. Did a quick check on my resume. I had no resume to become a hostage negotiator. I, you know, I was, uh, I was very young at the time. Uh, theoretically, I still consider myself very young. But uh, she went through the laundry list and rejected me. And being unwilling to, I don't believe that there's a problem you can't solve. You know, figure it out. So how do I solve this? She said, volunteer on a suicide hotline. I'm like, ah, all right. You know, take advice from somebody in a position to give you advice. 
uh, as somebody you'd either trade places with or has been where you want to go, and then actually follow that advice. So she told me to go volunteer on a suicide hotline. And I went there. My chief advantage for volunteering there was I didn't go there to help. You know, the fact that I was helping people was icing on the cake, a secondary benefit. But I went there to learn a skill. I went there to learn. I love to learn. Like I can't get enough of learning. And so then I soaked it up. You know, each mistake I made was a was a learning experience. All right, so that's how you that's how you don't do it right. And through the course of time, what I found out just recently, I became very convinced that the process that I learned was the best process, not perfect, but the best. Consequently, after I got off the hotline, the first hostage taking I was involved in, which was a really rare unicorn event, a bank robbery with hostages, which is really rare. I mean, exceedingly rare. In the United States this year, one of them won't happen in the entire country. And we're so conditioned with Hollywood movies to think that they happen. Like, I'm thinking of Pacino's first, possibly Pacino's best movie, Dog Day Afternoon. Right. Like, you just think these are all, these happen every day in the U.S. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and in point of fact, the bad guys know the police are coming. They, they get out of there before you show up. So, um, but I relaxed into the process. I remember very specifically, I, I didn't call it that then. But the, the way to deal with stress is to relax into it. And how do I know? I, I heard a neuroscientist laid it out for me exactly like that recently, uh, Andrew Huberman. And I simultaneously found, you know, I'm, these days I'm doing every health hack out there. I got a cold plunge in the backyard. My girlfriend, Wendy Starlin, gave me one for my birthday. And I found the difference that if when I'm getting ready into the cold plunge, if I feel like I got to brace myself for it, it takes me longer to adapt. And I'd been telling myself, relax into it, relax into it. If you can tell yourself to relax into stress, your body mobilizes its resources differently. Your heart rate increases, your circulatory system increases its capacity to pump blood to your extremities when you relax. So consequently, if you can get yourself to relax into stress, your body mobilizes resources more effectively. So were you able to use that sort of strategy to compartmentalize it? Like I'm thinking on a practical sense that if you're in a relationship or you have kids, I'm not sure your personal situation was at the time, but a particularly stressful day in work on the suicide hotline, that must be hard to unplug from and come home and have, you know, Netflix and chill with the missus. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question because I'm not sure if it's compartmentalization I think maybe psychologists, counselors, psychiatrists probably called it that in the early days because to me, compartmentalization is so, so like put in a closet and it's still there. And I'm not sure that when we effectively deal with it, it's still there if we deactivate it, if we process it, if we reinterpret it. You know, I saw a bumper sticker a number of years ago that said, what's the difference between adventure and ordeal? Attitude. <laughs> I like that. And in point of fact, stress is either if you believe it debilitates you, it does. If you believe it enhances your performance, it does. So neither one of those are compartmentalization. So I'm not sure that it's compartmentalization. I think it's a, a more effective way of dealing with it, which deactivates it, diffuses it, makes it go away. It, it, it's not in a cabinet. It's not in a closet waiting to jump back out at you. So. Given that you've lived through the experience of 
dealing with that, you know, trauma from working on that hotline and continuing a functional life. Is there lessons in that that you? Wait can a minute. Pass? Who said I was functional? That you know, that, there'd be a lot of people that argue that point. <laughs> we'll we'll hypothetically say you're a functional, but is there a lesson from that that you could pass on to an athlete who's looking to? You know, I don't use the word compartmentalize again, but the athlete is looking to compartmentalize that bad performance and say, okay, this bad performance doesn't define me and I can go on about the rest of my life because I wear multiple hats. I'm not just an athlete. I'm not just a person who responds on a hotline. I'm also a father. I'm also a husband. I'm also, you know, a volunteer somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. that's a great question. The ongoing struggle of, of how we get better. And all right, so I think... How do you how do you define yourself? You know, I'll uh, I'll I'll quote the great Irish philosopher Colin McGregor, <laughs> who said, "I win or I learn." So then it takes defeat completely out of it. How do you characterize yourself? Uh, if you characterize yourself as as a learner, you're you're going to do better. And then I'll draw another analogy because I'm watching the um, the TV show uh, Quarterbacks. It's about NFL quarterbacks, and the three quarterbacks that it's looking at is um, the guy from the Kansas City Chiefs, a uh, guy from the Minnesota Vikings, and a guy who's currently with the Falcons. The mental attitude of the three. Uh, the Chiefs guy who's won a couple of Super Bowls. God, I, should, I can see his face. I can't think of his name. He, you can tell he's constantly learning, which then means it's separate from having a goal. If you're constantly learning, the goal is to continue to learn. Now, uh, Cousins with the Vikings, who I've always been a fan of and thought was un underrated, he calls himself a perfectionist. Uh, so first of all, that's a, that's a recipe for uh, unhappiness if you consider yourself to be a perfectionist, because perfection is never achieved. And if it is, you didn't learn anything from it. And so it's a recipe where he's almost constantly unhappy. Now, now the Chiefs guy is, is ridiculously happy all the time. I mean, he's having a ball. I mean, he's having the best time, and he's constantly learning. Now, uh, when the when the Vikings, uh, Kirk Cousins, they, they give him a new offensive coordinator, his first NFL game with the new offensive coordinator, they have a near-perfect game. And he looks back on it, and he says, you know, that was almost too easy. It just went really well. Well, the hidden message there is he didn't learn anything. Now, the very next game, when things started going sideways on him, he, he was flummoxed, he was caught off guard, he hadn't learned from a previous experience. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs guy, like since he's learning all the time, he could put in a near perfect game. If his goal was a great game, then he has a great game. He doesn't learn anything. But he defines himself as a learner, a delighted learner at all times. So even if he if even if he completed every pass, even if he called every every play perfectly, he he still would have been fascinated and curious about the process. So I think in, in the performance of, of a human being when you're dealing with yourself professionally and how do you take it back to your family and how do you, how do you deal with the trauma, or your original question, I think it really matters as to how you characterize yourself. Are you a learner? Well, you're never really recovering from trauma if you're a learner. But if you're a perfectionist, you're constantly recovering from it. And I think you can wear different hats and you can transition. I know coming from law, I had this attention to detail, perfectionism, and now stepping into this new, and it still feels weird for me saying a career as a podcaster, it's more akin to an art 
And art is never finished. Art is only abandoned because I could have spent a year researching for this podcast with you. At some point, I just have to abandon the pursuit and say, enough is good enough. I have to press publish. I have to move on to the next one. That's what art is. Yeah, it's, it's a great comparison. Are you an artist or are you a scientist or a mathematician or, or whatever the, the, the flip side of it is? As an artist, yeah. Then you're into the process. And even if you didn't do well, you probably learn and, and grow from it. So yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting comparison. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends, simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. Something interesting, actually, that you touched on there, and I'd love to know. So I, I mentioned law school. When I came through law school, I, I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but over here, it's excruciatingly painful. So I came from a middle-class and a family, and I played some poker during law school to pay back my law school loans. And one of the things- <laughs> you paid back the loans playing poker as opposed to being worse off. So well done. Yeah, but I had a really tight system where I was just trying to earn like $15 an hour and I'd only play when nightclubs were thrown out. So I'd be playing against drunk people and I'd play totally sober. So anything I could to stack that advantage because I wasn't a super player. But you do learn to read opponents and that's very similar in sport. We're always reading opponents. You're looking for a micro tail. You know, you're looking behind the glasses. How fatigued is this person? You're analyzing pedal strokes. You're looking at the way they take a drink from their bottle. In a negotiation is this the same thing? How do you get a read on your opponent? Well, yeah, you are looking for the microtels, but then what you do with them is really the difference. Because um, the microtels are helping you diagnose the barriers on the other side, the fears, exactly what their fears are. And you can't ignore them. Um, one of the things in, in, in our, our most recent thinking now in a Black Swan group, we've come up with 11 commandments of negotiation. And I think number four is, Thou shalt not ignore latent signs, which is effectively microtels. The difference with a great negotiation is I'm going to use the microtels to figure out how we could collaborate. It's as if we were playing poker and we want to pool our cards so that we come up with the best hand possible. 
Now, that's a frightening and scary thing to do, but that's exactly what great collaboration is about, pooling our resources so we get uh, the maximum possible return out of the deal. We both feel very good about the fact that we collaborated, and ideally we're in a long-term relationship of trust. And that those that's the real biggest difference because people want to know is trust is our uh, our negotiations playing poker or our negotiations playing chess? Well, actually, it's neither unless you're playing poker so that you can put your cards together so the two of you can have the best hand on the table. But the similarity why a lot of people I think get confused and want it to be poker is you are looking for microtels, you're trying to figure out what the other other side is hiding. And you're trying to get them to willingly collaborate with you as opposed to figure out what they're hiding so you can beat them. You use the word collaborate five times there. And I think <laughs> that's so telling that you're trying to move the negotiation, be this a negotiation in work, a family negotiation, anything. You're trying to move it away from something that has a binary outcome, like one winner and one loser, and something where we can both win in this. Yeah, yeah, because I'm I know as as a selfish, self-centered mercenary, I'm going to make the most money if you and I collaborate over the long term. We can trust each other. We look out for each other. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. I will be as a, if if I'm nothing but a mercenary. I will be far more wealthy. If you and I team up and work together with a high degree of trust. Now, simultaneously, as a human being, we'll both be happier. You know, the missionary in me loves that because we'll both be happier. We'll live longer. We'll be able to enjoy more, more of the money that we make together. So I'm, I'm definitely after collaboration, even if I'm completely self-centered, if I'm agnostic, totally. All I want is to build my bank account as much as I possibly can. To quote one of our high-level performing coaching clients, I made more money being collaborative than I ever made being cutthroat. <laughs> In your book, you write about the words mirroring. It's very, very interesting. Can you explain to our audience what that means? What that means? Yeah, what it means to mirror someone in a negotiation. All right. So forgive me. I'm sure you noticed immediately. That's exactly what I just did with you. <laughs> well played. And I use <laughs> silence then because when you mirror, it's, it's repeating one to three words that the person just said. The, uh, the black swan method mirror, the tactical empathy mirror, even a hostage negotiator's mirror is not to imitate your body language or your tone of voice. You know, a lot, um, what people previously called mirroring, if you if you turn your head to the side and you put your hand to the chin, your chin, then I'll do that too. And somehow we'll be in sync and it'll be this mystical hypnosis between the two of us. <laughs> and so I can lead you into a deal by reflecting your body language. Isopraxism, I think, is the multi-syllable academic term for it. Uh, the hostage negotiator's mirror, the black swan mirror, is just repeating one to three-ish words. One word, never really more than five. Usually the last three few words, but I can move it around and I can and I can pick out different words at different points in time to mirror. It's a great way to gently steer the conversation, and, and it's um, an A-plus 
substitute for the, the C plus question of what do you mean by that? Now, what do you mean by that is not a bad question, but I would maybe, maybe what do you mean by that is a B minus question. What do you mean by that kind of escalates, I find? I was playing around with this after yes. I read it with my girlfriend where we constantly have this, she wants me to bring the bins down and I don't, we live in an apartment and the bins have to be carried down to the outside uh, garbage. And it's like, she's like, oh, will you bring the bins down? I'm like, what do you mean by that? Because we've recycling bins, we've regular waste. <laughs> um, when I say, what do I mean by that? It's adversarial straight away. So like, oh, the bins, like the, the bloody bins, you know well what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they repeat it only louder, right? Exactly. <laughs> the exact same words. And so you, you actually may be, that may be a legitimate question, but, but the, and as, as you point out often, uh, that question is an escalation. Now, you, when you mirror it, for whatever reason, is something different that clicks in somebody's head and uh, they'll expand on it or at, at a bare minimum, they won't escalate. When I married you a few moments ago, you hesitated, so my use of dynamic silence, you know, I got to sit there comfortably in the silence. And I got to let you come out of it comfortably. And then I'll, I'll, I'll diagnose how to move forward based on your response. And you were a little reluctant to come out of it, but you didn't come out escalated. And so it's a great way to get more information without causing the other side to feel challenged or misunderstood or what do you mean by that? How, people usually repeat the exact same words the same way. And the mirror lets somebody know, all right, so I got your words, I got the words. And I, and I proved it because I repeated them and I'm listening and I'm actually curious and I would really like you to go on and I, I need you to add to it. And it's a, it's a gentle, respectful request to add to what you just said. And then you sit there and wait and sitting in dynamic silence for two out of three people, it's just horribly excruciating until you learn how effective it could be. And when you learn how effective silence could be, I mean, you're using it all the time. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatellis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. I had a friend who was a landscape gardener and he was telling me about the power of silence. So he said he would do summer jobs and he'd go to these wealthy houses and he'd go into the back garden and they'd say, oh, can you price the job? And he'd come back and he'd say, you know, an extortionate figure for the job. Like this is going to be, it's a $150,000 job. And so they'd say, okay, well, do you have a price in mind for the job? And he'd say 150000 And then he would just say totally quiet. And they'd come back and go, 150000 is very expensive. But he wouldn't say anything. And he would stay quiet for sometimes minutes as they went on this journey on their own. They go, well, yeah, that's a lot of money. I'm not sure my wife's going to go for that. Well, but it, but it is high quality material you're using. 
and, and, and my neighbour did give raving reviews about how good you are and they're, okay, 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 100, 150,000 it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so powerful like that. It's really amazing how many people are afraid to do it, just horrified by it. And everybody's got two or three uh, examples, but I think in, until you've actually done it and experienced yourself is, is what really breaks the barrier. You got to feel success for yourself, no matter how many times you see it around you. You just have to experience it yourself. Can you think of a real world negotiating example where you use that mirror in, in the field? Well, um, the first bank robbery I was in, I had, I had the skill of mirroring sort of as uh, a reflexive action based on practice. You know, what uh, Denzel Washington, his character in the movie Man on Fire, said, there's only trained and untrained. And so I had been training and I had been mirroring. And in, in the bank robbery, I was moving towards a point in time where I was getting ready to confront the bank robber over his identity. He'd been hiding it from us for a very long time. Wouldn't even give us his first name. And the negotiator was on the phone ahead of me, just said, okay, I'm going to call you Billy, just to give you a name. And by the time they put me on the phone, we 99% sure identified him based on voice ID and some other circumstances. And I was told to confront him with his name. And I, you know, I wanted to back into it gently. So the way we got it is we found his van and we identified his, you know, the registration, went to his house, found a neighbor that knew him and brought the neighbor to the house and listened to him. And the guy says, yeah, that's, that's Chris Watts. So I'm going to back into it by asking him about the van, which he doesn't know that we found. And I start talking about the van and I see, you know, we got a van idea out here and, and we've identified the drivers of all the vehicles except this one. And he, I think he says something to me effective, uh, will you chase my driver away? And I, I, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's not responsive to what I've said at all. And I'm just really confused in a moment. So I go, we chase your driver away? <laughs> he said, yeah, when he, when he saw the police, he cut and run. And I mirrored him a couple of times. And this highly controlled person who was just very manipulative, in control at all times, not flummoxed, the mirror's getting, suddenly he's blurting out information telling us about his getaway driver that we had no idea had ever been at the scene. And his spontaneous emissions in, the, in this negotiation are what actually caused the getaway driver to plead guilty to the charges because we had the bad guy on tape giving him up. That's top class. So I, I mirrored at the point in time just because I was confused and I didn't know what else to say. But there must come a point in negotiation. I'm sure you're doing everything you can in most circumstances to avoid an adversarial relationship. But there must come a point where you need to dig your heels in and say no. How can you say no productively? Well, you let it out a little at a time. To quote a friend of mine, uh, he used to be a general manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Ned Coletti. We're sitting around talking about this. Because we'd been teaching previously in my company, and we still do, but we've added to it a lot, that the first way to say no is to say, how am I supposed to do that? Just look straight at the other side and go, how am I supposed to do that? And then we got four very specific ways to tighten it down a little at a time each time to finally, if the other side doesn't get the idea, you just go no. And you don't say it accusatory. You don't slam your hands on the table and walk out. You know, you're not dramatic which is very effective short-term, very toxic long-term. And I believe in long-term because it makes me more money. So I'll start out with, how am I supposed to do that? To begin to telegraph that this is a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll say, 
you know, you've been very generous. That just doesn't work for me. If you still don't get the idea, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't do that. And if you're still pushing me, that's when I just go, no. And at that point in time, I'm prepared to walk out the door. But each time I let no out, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you. What I did was I don't want to blindside you with no. I don't want you to get caught off guard. I want you to know it's coming. Because the last impression is a lasting impression. And if I hit you with a no, boom, right off the bat, my last impression is very negative. You feel off, caught off guard. You feel angry. If I gently let it out a little at a time, when I finally say it, inside you go like, well, you warned me. And you're far less angry and you're far more likely to come back and be collaborative later. Like these hostage negotiation situations, they are, they're, they're so highly charged and highly pressurized. They remind me of when I talk to athletes on the podcast and they've been building up for a four-year Olympic cycle. And, you know, maybe a four-year Olympic cycle doesn't even do justice to the preparation that goes into events like this. It's maybe a lifetime building up to the four-year Olympic cycle. And then it all boils down to one day. And it's similar on this. I know it's not all boiling down to one day, but as you highlighted, they're quite infrequent. How do you manage that weight of expectation when you get in there? And by weight of expectation, let me just clarify that before you answer it. I mean both the weight of expectation from others for you to deliver a favorable outcome, but also the weight of expectation on yourself, which is arguably a heavier weight of expectation a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, training. It's, you know, it's training. Um, my training on the suicide hotline was preparation for being in real hostage negotiations. Uh, when I didn't have time to train on the suicide hotline, uh, we were in simulations all the time. We were uh, role-playing, uh, reading, uh, visualizing. I, a long time ago, I remember hearing somebody talk of watching a, a high school football player running up and down the sideline where nobody was on the sideline, but he was uh, practicing dodging blocks. And I heard one of the fathers say, oh, that's visualization. He's envisioning his performance. And so you're practicing, you're training, you're preparing, you're visualizing, you're visualizing yourself doing it correctly, and you're visualizing the outcomes. You're embracing the fact that you could fail entirely. A uh, similar metaphor, I remember reading a long time ago that summarized. How did Samurais deal so well with death? They thought it was a possibility. I simply accepted it was one possible outcome and it could happen. And instead of being afraid of it, it's a possible outcome. And I'm coaching a negotiation and kidnapping. This uh, gentleman gets kidnapped in the Philippines. At the, didn't know it at the time. He was kidnapped by a serial killer, serial kidnapper, lone kidnapper. I mean, this is a unicorn event. And I know I've used that phrase before. But at that point in time, I'd never heard of a lone kidnapper ever in any case. And I had enough knowledge and still do to this day. But at then, I was really at the top of my game. I knew as much about kidnapping as any other five people in the entire world. And if I'd never heard of a lone kidnapper, it probably didn't happen. Maybe it did, but I would have heard of it. Now, we don't know this guy at the time. Most coachable member of the family is a brother. Brother was, was great. And he took to our coaching so well that spontaneously in the moment, he created his own phrases that he used in a negotiation. And I remember hearing him saying to myself, I wish I'd thought of that. You know, that was genius. And afterwards, we rescued his brother. Uh, his brother came out not seriously injured. He'd been beat up a little bit. He'd been bruised. 
um, no permanent damage. But I'm asking, you know, Aaron, the guy that I'm coaching, like, dude, like, you're the most coachable person I ever came across. You came up with brilliant stuff. Like, how did you, how did you do that? And he said, well, I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but when we started out, I realized it was possible that my brother was going to get killed. And it just might be beyond my control entirely. And so for whatever reason, I guess that made me more coachable. And I studied that, and then I finally came across uh, somebody else had written about performance and fear, and they made the comparison to samurai. And they said, samurai just accepted that death was a possible outcome. And simple acceptance of it helped them deal with it. And I think for any athlete, getting ready for that moment, walk through how you'd cope with failure and say, all right, that's an outcome. However I've imagined it is probably a flawed imagination. But if I imagine the worst and I see myself moving on and dealing with it, then the chances that I will successfully are there. And the in point of fact, it increases my chances of never seeing failure if I'm not afraid of it, if I've just accepted it's a possible outcome. How much pre-game planning is there in this? How much mapping of, well, if I ask this question, here's the potential responses if he answers this way, here's the potential responses. I'm thinking like prisoner's dilemma. If he does this, then we do this. Uh, a lot, but it depends. you have to not confine yourself to one possible response. The Brits, Scotland Yard, uh, London Metropolitan Police, came up with something called bunches of fives. Now, the London Met guys are out internationally regularly. I used to bump into them in embassies all over the world, so much so that, you know, it was kind of the usual suspects. I was kidnapping Baghdad. I'm going to show up. <laughs> the Brits are going to show. The Canadians are going to show. It's the same guys that I saw at the last case. So the Brits were really good at kidnappings, and they came up with a method called bunches of fives. What you have to do is maintain your flexibility. If you think there's only going to be one response to your question and you map it out, if their response doesn't map what you thought, you fall apart. But if you thought of no less than three, and, and the Brits called it bunches of fives, then you maintain your flexibility. And consequently, you, you thought of five possibilities. There's a really good chance one of them's going to be exactly right. But even if it's not, you prepared yourself for multiple outcomes and you maintain your flexibility. So the key to thinking ahead is don't think of just one possibility. And then also don't think any farther ahead than three steps because the chessboard's going to reset after three steps anyway and all of your thinking is wasted time. When you're sitting here now with the benefit of hindsight and reflecting back on your career, is there a moment similar to an athlete might have in a post-race reflection where you felt you could have played the game a little bit differently? Yeah, there is that moment. And to save yourself... And, and to really to be fair and, and to the universe, because even in that moment, it's a world of imperfect information. Like, if I'd have changed my behavior, that doesn't guarantee the outcome would have changed. There's just too many variables out there. My father had a favorite phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's a delusion. Hindsight is not twenty twenty. You could go back and could have changed that behavior and come up with a different failure not necessarily success. And that is, in fact, the, the nature of the universe. There are just too many moving parts out there, too many variables, too, too many things 
to be able to take the arrogance of looking back and say to yourself, all right, if I'd have changed this one thing, I'd have been successful. If you'd have changed the one thing, the outcome would have been different, but there's no guarantee that it would have been successful. A lot of times in life, we drift down paths. We drift down courses of action. And I think that's true for, you know, maybe a high 90% of decisions that people undertake. But there is harder inflection points in one's life. And that interaction with a negotiator is invariably going to be one of these harder inflection points. What do you believe the legacy of a negotiator is? Does it transcend beyond that immediate situation? That's a great question. Um, You know, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, uh, for a great hostage negotiator, the the legacy is extremely intangible because uh, the positive things that you did will ripple in such a subtle way that you may never know. And chances are you will never know. You know, how many positive things happen that, you know, the butterfly effect, the the black swans that were triggered in a positive way if you did a good job. You're never really going to kind of know. And so the, the satisfaction has got to be very intrinsic in, into having done the job and, and done as well as you possibly can. And I think that it's, it's the same thing in a business negotiation. I mean, it's really hard to track real success and the ripple effects of real success. Failure is usually much easier to track and people want to take blame and that's a little bit self-centered and uh, you know, it could be more debilitating, but, uh, you know, the, the legacy of, of being positive is very hard. And then the real issue is whether or not did you learn from it. In a case in the Philippines, a Burnham Sabero case, two out of three of the Americans didn't make it out alive. And a bunch of, most of the Filipinos, probably a third of them got killed because they're, uh, two thirds of them got out because their families were free to uh, ransom them out. They were operating under a different set of rules. But the Americans that got killed in that, especially towards the end, Martin Burnham was, was killed by friendly fire and his wife, Gracia, lived, but she was, she was shot and wounded. I initially took that as, as a tremendous failure. And then I thought, all right, so if we apply the positively the lessons that we've learned from this, it's going to end up saving lives. And that's really hard to do. And it's very small consolation for the Burnham family. And we use those lessons to save lives on down the line. So... How do you process it, I guess, is the question. Chris, I've absolutely loved this chat. Before you run off to your next high-stakes negotiation, wherever that be, if people got a lot of value from this conversation, where's the best place to follow up with you? Uh, the best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, you go to the website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Upper right-hand corner, the edge is our newsletter. Hit that tab. There are back uh, articles. The great thing about The Edge is it's actionable and it's concise. You know, emphasis on concise. You don't have to take a nap after you read it or it's not, it's not a heavy read. It's a short, <laughs> actionable article. We're going to ask for your email. We're going to want you to email it to you on Tuesday morning, wherever you are in the world. You know, Monday's, Monday's your buffer day. Monday's get back to work, handle your, all your admin stuff. You're ready to rock and roll on Tuesday. The Edge tees you up to, to negotiate effectively that day and then let that ripple through the week. So, And it's also where you find out about all the new um, training events we have, all the latest things that we're putting out to try to stay on the cutting edge of negotiation. We are staying on the cutting edge of negotiation. And it's really the gateway to everything that the Black Swan Group does. So the newsletter of The Edge is, is a useful thing to subscribe to, and it's at no cost. 
Chris, it's been a blast. And everybody on a link up Chris's book below, go get that as well. Absolutely top class read. Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure to mine. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.